Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Uh, How are they they looking? How are they looking, your tabs? My tabs are... My tabs are sexy. (laughs) Not the appropriate answer. Oh. My tabs look healthy. Mm -hmm. Better. Healthy, strong tabs. Mm. I've been working my tabs. (laughs) I found it. It's like I found a new tab. Does your trainer help you with... (laughs) He does. He helps me work my tabs. I took a little bit of a light uh, workout this week because I had some soreness. Uh, in my ankles, and uh, as a result, we worked a lot of the tabs. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I see. Are I we, have um, a response to that. All right, are, are we finished monkeying around here? Can we get serious? There are no more monkeys here. All right. Um, uh, what have you seen this week? Anything good? Anything well, new? Should we tell people who we are first? <laughs> Since we so effectively, I love that. I love that it. last it's, week. It's as if it, it's as if we imagine people just naturally tuned to us, like on the radio. Oh, I'm going to stop at Kilo 105, and uh, well, who who are these guys? That guy, I mean, that just is not a thing that happens, right? Uh, I don't think so. All right. maybe, that's Andy Nelson over there, and he's charming, and uh, he's a, he's a lot of fun to be with. He has great bone structure, interesting taste in clothes, and a lot of fun to be be with. I'm Pete Wright, and uh, I can be found often hanging around water coolers and the occasional violin store. And this is the next reel, and we talk about movies, and we spoil them horrifically. So in in this case, if you haven't rushed out to see tonight's film, the 1934 It Happened One Night from Frank Capra, you should rush out and do that at your nearest Cineplex and then come back and listen to this show. Consider yourself warned. <laughs> Public. <laughs> uh, we'll show them. That's right. Uh, let's, let's spoil see. this We're gonna sucker. Spoil this 1934 film. We, uh, you can find us at thenextreel.com. That's always a good uh, website to to put in your uh, handy uh, bookmarks uh, bar. That's and at facebook.com, you can uh, find us at facebook.com slash thenextreel. Uh, and uh, that's another good place to join the conversation. So. What what I miss? Always. Anything good? Um, no. I don't think so. I don't think so. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go right away. Now we're just gonna jump into it. Uh, jump. Yeah, let's do it. Let's start with uh, trailers, shall we? Do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first? You go. I'll first. go first. You need to go first. Yeah, mine is light it's and fluffy. Fairly epic. <laughs> it is. I. It could be. <laughs> it's hard to say. It's. I. Yeah. It's sort of. I don't know. Well. Here's the thing. Did my you, my, yeah. my trailer this week is Muppets Most Wanted. It's the the new sequel to the latest round of Muppet movies. I, 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 I get confused if it's like, okay, this is the 
I don't know, fifth or sixth Muppet movie. It's not really a sequel anymore. It's just another in the line of them, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. Right. It's just in the they Muppet family. Do, it's not even. It's like Bond. Yeah. It's just another. Yeah. But I'm, this one oddly really feels torn. like it, it oddly feels kind of like a remake or at least a spiritual remake of the great Muppet caper, which was the second Muppet film, because in this film, the, uh, you know, the quote on the website is the Muppets find themselves unwittingly entangled in an international crime caper in Muppets Most Wanted. Yes. Which is essentially what happened in the great Muppet caper, at yes. least international crime caper. Yeah. 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 Charles Grodin stealing the jewel, falling in love with Miss Piggy. Yeah, Norman yeah. had to save the day. Here's the here's the here's the thing. Um, they where is what's his name from uh, uh, the Jason? Uh, what's his name? Jason. Blah, 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 the last one. Yeah, Jason. Jason blah blah blah. Yeah, blah blah blah. blah, 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 blah. Jason. Yeah. I'm supposed to have it faster than that, Andy. Now it's, it's, the, now it's awkward. Guy. No, Jason here's Siegel. Jason, Jason Siegel. Siegel. <laughs> I find Jason Siegel charming and funny and the perfect actor for a Muppet film. I'm not sure that Ricky Gervais has the same, uh, what's the word, uh, charm? Je ne sais quoi. Uh, Tina Fey plays the Russian. Ray Liotta is in it. It, it's a list like any Muppet Danny, film. It's Danny Trejo movie. is, uh, you know, Machete. Tom Hiddleston plays Great Escapo. <laughs> <laughs> Christoph Waltz is in it. it. Um, I know you've got uh, Ty Burrell, Frank Langella. But it, it's it looks like it looks like the, from the trailer. It looks like we've got a lot of Ty Burrell and a lot of Ricky Gervais. And a lot that of is what it looks like. That's yes. sort of the core human cast. In addition, although to- in although in the trailer, it doesn't really get into anything having to do with the jewel heist caper headed by a Kermit lookalike and his dastardly sidekick. No, it gets into none of that. That's true. It gets into none of that. It's just shenanigans. It's Muppet shenanigans, is what we see in the trailer. There's a lot of like light stands falling. That's a big thing. And a lot of moves like Jagger. It's a trope. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a lot of moves like that. and penguins. And penguins, yes. Uh, it it is. Um, it, it yeah, it is. I, you know what? I hope actually, what comes out of this are more brilliant uh, teaser trailers. Because uh, if you remember last time, it was they did this great series of like remakes of great movies with Muppets. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was fantastic. It was a great, great series. Was it was trailers. it trailers or was it the posters? I remember a lot of posters. Maybe I'm oh, not I remembering the trailers. trailers. Well, I'll have to look that up and make sure I'm not completely making that up. There's a chance I'm making that up, but I don't. I don't think it's a very good one. I think it is a good chance. I, no, well, on that we disagree. <laughs> um, so, how would you like that job? Getting paid to do the Muppet trailer remakes of big movies. I would want that job <laughs> in a heartbeat. You say that might, like that'd be a chore. Are you no, kidding? I, I might want that job more than actually making the movie itself. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. What would your number one movie be? Well, it always has to be recent, recent, like ultra recent films. Yeah, Oblivion. But, you know, the, well, I was thinking like Iron Man 3, oh, yeah, af- good... After Earth. <laughs> <laughs> We're the Millers, a strip, stripper Muppet, runaway Muppet. How about Ega? <laughs> uh, Lovelace. Oh, my. Yeah. We have, no, that's we're already we're, derailing. Yeah, this is good. In a world. Oh, totally. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's coming. 
It's got to be coming soon. It is coming. It is. Uh, yes, oh, it is. Okay. Um, so that's my trailer. That's good. You know, I, I'm looking forward to it about as much as I look forward to any Muppet movie, which is on a on a fairly uh, you know middling ground level. I always am looking forward to seeing it and hoping I enjoy it, and I always kind of leave going, ah, okay, that was kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, I can. That's right. Yeah. So you know, I hope this one is kind of fun. No, me too. Maybe, maybe a little better. Me too. This one opens March 21st next year. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, uh, March 21st. Oh, wonder if I'll be little, busy. Little ways away. I wonder if I'll be busy that day. Um, we uh, other breaking news today. Mm. Did you hear this in your favorite uh, genre of uh, geriatric action movies? Uh, I don't know. You haven't heard the latest Harrison Ford news? This shows I... that he's crossed over. This news that Harrison Ford has crossed over. He's making a more two. <laughs> no. <laughs> He's replaced Bruce Willis in your favorite, The Expendables 3. What? Wow. Yeah. And yeah. He... Sly Stallone himself tweeted that news that Harrison Ford is in. Wow. No. He, he really is. He, he really has crossed that line, hasn't he? Uh, okay. My trailer is uh, not anything related to Harrison Ford. My trailer is the new Rennie Harlan film. When's but it is related time? to Bruce Willis. It oh, is. See, you kind of right? you 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 missed an opportunity for a good through line there. Oh, yeah. man. It is related to Bruce Willis uh, yeah. and the uh, Die Hard, right? And yeah, Sly Stallone. Die Hard too. And Sly Stallone with cliffhanger. Sli- yeah, Please. See, you, you totally missed missed that one. You are a wicked web weaver, my friend. We uh, and, and so he's got this new movie. It's called uh, Devil's Pass, and it's coming out February twenty eighth, twenty thirteen, in Russia. <laughs> Who knows when it's coming out here? I don't. I don't know when we'll get it. Uh, and it's uh, looks it, like August twenty third limited. Oh, good. Well, so there <laughs> you're on. You're on the case. Uh, five young filmmakers retrace the steps of a doomed group of hikers in pursuit of an unsolvable mystery. And I'm really, torn, I'm really torn on this movie because when I saw that when the trailer starts, you know, it's an avalanche story. I love me some apocalyptic uh, kind of uh, uh, you know doom and gloom films. You give me a skyscraper on fire, people trying to escape. You give me a sinking cruise ship. You give me any of those kinds of things. I'm pretty excited. And so when I see an avalanche natural disaster movie, I you know, I would watch a Volcano. I would do that. I would watch Volcano again. Wow. Uh, because I'm, I'm into the La, Brea, the La Brea tar pits, uh, uh, you know, boiling over. Anyway, <laughs> I, uh, I'm big into those movies. And so I was excited that this was an avalanche movie in itself, you know. because I don't know. Yeah. Did you see the New York Times story that came out a while ago? They did this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful digital feature on this avalanche thing, you know. And it was uh, this great avalanche story and rescue and people— uh, you know, there were people who, you know, died and were trapped, and it was a true story. And I thought, well, now they're making a movie of that. I was very excited. Then it turns out it's like a creature thing. Yeah, it was, uh, the, was a, a little different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and, it, and it's, it goes uh, into the descent. It's what it all it's exactly turns what it turns into. That's what it looks like. So it's an avalanche film crossed with the descent, and. You know, I don't know if I should be more excited about this or less. I, Rennie Harlan, I'm hot and cold with Rennie Harlan stuff. Um, but Well, <laughs> just the fact that they have to put on the poster, director of Die Hard 2 and Cliffhanger, yeah. to let you know who this is, being his films that he made in 1990 and 1993. <laughs> right, right. What, no word about the long kiss goodnight? 
<laughs> oh, hey, I liked the long kiss goodnight. I knew you were going to say that. I knew it so. I knew it so. But they're not uh, saying but deep blue sea. Five, five days of war. No. Twelve rounds. Cleaner. Not even mind hunters. <laughs> Don't forget mind oh, hunters. Oh, yes. Old Val Kilmer. Right? Mm-hmm. We know how much we love Val. Uh, so anyway, that's my trailer. I'm 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 marginally excited about it because it does have avalanches and the descent. So well, and I will say about it, I because I saw the trailer and I'm like, that's interesting. The Dyatlov Pass incident, which I had never heard of, it was an actual uh, avalanche incident in the Ural Mountains where these nine yes. ski hikers actually did die, and there is a lot of mystery about the circumstances they have theories about things paranormal activity secret weapon tests avalanche damage uh, you know all these different uh, circumstances of things that uh, as far as the evidence that they ended up finding that led people down lots of different roads as far as what actually happened so yes yeah that's true i don't think they ended up being devoured by underground uh, human humanoid creatures <laughs> but you never know I, I will say that it, the character of Alia, I bet she makes it because she's listed here as played by two actresses, once as Alia at 20 years old and once as Alia at 73 years old. So I bet it's not uh, uh, the actress or the character named Holly King because we have Holly King and then there's another actress playing Holly Creature. Creature. <laughs> 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 Which makes me think maybe Holly doesn't stay. Holly, as Holly doesn't King make it. <laughs> That's spoiler horrible. alert. Thank you for reading I the thought, credits. Oh my gosh, I thought I was totally on the ball with that one, but I missed Holly Creature. That's fantastic. <laughs> Ironically, Holly King is actually played by Holly Goss. Uh, like they yeah, couldn't be... really, they couldn't re- with the names. They had I to know. stick with Holly. I know. All right. Uh, so that's uh, that's the uh, Devil's Pass. You should go see yeah. it. looks looks exciting. You can catch it, looks, it at. Looks creepy. You can't. You can. And it's funny, isn't it? Funny that I'm the one who who points this out. That this is a movie. I don't usually do the horror movies. I I know. There's like a little change up going on over here. A little bit. Whoa. Um. Do, let's see. Before we talk about this movie, we're going to talk about tonight. Hmm. Uh, do we have any other updates that we need to fill people in on? Do we have any other? We we wanted. I think we missed something last week. We weren't we supposed to say uh, say something? Mm. Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't. Oh, uh, well, you know, if you you know what really helped people. Let me tell you. I remember what it is. If you head over to iTunes and subscribe to the show, as long as you're there, drop us a couple of uh, a couple of nice words on the review page there. That really helps other people discover the show. And we've gotten some such nice comments. And we totally missed one from. Oh, Sir right. Mike two fourteen, uh, he's he, you know what he's very simple. He's straightforward. He gives us five stars. We love those five stars. And he says, uh, "I look forward to this podcast every week. It's entertaining and educational." I wonder which is which. <laughs> you mean me and you? Mm-hmm. That's what, yeah, I said it. I said it. You I'm went not, there. I'm not a feared. Uh, and so we we sure appreciate that. Thank you so much, uh, Sir Mike. And uh, and anybody else who has time and inclination to jump over there, we sure appreciate it. Definitely we do. All right. All right. Shall we talk about this movie? Let's do it. We are continuing. We're actually continuing and ending our long-running series 
Couples, couples <laughs> on four, the run. Four episodes. Right. Uh, Actually, couples five. on the run tonight's, movies. Yeah, tonight's the fifth. This is the fifth. This is a fifth episode we we started with. Do you even remember what movies what what our movies were so far that we we've did done? Night Run. Mm-hmm. True Com- Comedy. Uh, horrific, horrific Violence. <laughs> Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Western. Night of the Hunter. Horrible Preachers. <laughs> and it happened one night. Uh, it's like uh, it's like a, a pre-Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan kind of a thing. That's what I kept seeing in this film. Don't you think? That's an interesting uh, look at it. it. I hadn't thought about that. But this, it, it was Sleepless in Seattle in 1934. <laughs> with a, with a, uh, a very rich, possessive father. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not saying there weren't boundary issues. <laughs> I mean, there were there was there were family problems, but there was you know, they were it all, it all, it all out. worked out in the end. It, it does. does. It sure does. Well, Turn, you know, it it helps that this is by many people considered the father of the screwball comedy. Yes, I think that may be why it has that that Tom Hanksy Meg Ryan-y comedy. <laughs> you know, something funny, it's sort of. I think we, that I'll is give, at a new... I'll give anyone who can tell me what movie I'm referencing 10 points if they can ten, if they let us know. On 10 the... next real points? Mm-hmm. All right. That's worth right. something. Facebook. Head over to facebook.com slash the next reel. And if you, can, uh, if you can pull apart Andy's really spot on uh, <laughs> <laughs> improv there. <laughs> I need something, you know, funny. <laughs> That's good. That's good. No, do that a couple more times throughout the show. Just drop it in there. Um, this is not only is it the father of the uh, screwball uh, romantic comedy; it is the 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 father of other things as well as the father of. Uh, in fact, it is the father of films that win all five major Academy Awards. How about that? Yes, yes, it is that. It won yes. for Best Actor, Best Director, Best uh, Actress, Best Screenwriter, and Best Film in 1934, mm. the seventh Academy Awards. Uh, that's a that's great. That and, is and when good. it was the and the next time that that was uh, created, or the next time that was hit, was, was 1975. I, 1975. One flew over the the Cooper's Nest. (laughs) The Cooper's Nest. I've never seen that movie, so. Oh, my goodness. No, that's not true. That's not true. That's a lie. That was a joke. Please. So so it took 41 years for it to happen again. And then it's only happened one other time since then. That's right. Which was? For 10 more points, I'm going to go with Silence of the Lambs. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. ding, ding, ding. That's I right. There's I did no research. I just totally pulled that right. <laughs> I'm sure you did. Jonathan Demme, Anthony Hopkins, Jody Foster, and Ted Talley. Uh, so three times we got the big five, and this movie started it. And do you think, Andy, in hindsight, you put yourself in that 1934 audience. You're in your spats and your top hat. You've got your monocle on, and you head off to the uh, to the theater to the Oscar presentation. And they say it happened one night. Boom, 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 boom. Wins all the awards. Do you say to yourself, "Man, that was a good selection," or "Man, they were robbed"? Eh? <laughs> well, let's see. The top grossing films of 1934. 
are Viva Via, directed or starring Wallace Beery, Cleopatra, also starring Claudette Colbert, The Barretts of Wimple Street, starring Norma Shearer, The Thin Man with William Powell and Myrna Loy, The Richest Girl in the World, uh, starring Miriam Hopkins, The Gay Divorcee, starring Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, Imitation of Life, starring also Claudette Colbert, had a very busy year, The Girl from Missouri with Jean Harlow, and The House of Rothschild, starring George Arliss and Loretta Young, none of which I have seen. So <laughs> I am not the person to ask if this was the movie to win. <laughs> All right, that's fair. Uh, I, you know, I have seen, I've seen Cleopatra, and I've seen oh. The Thin Man. Okay. And uh, I want to say I've seen The Gay Divorcee, but I think that was like a Turner Movie Classics kind of weekend thing, and I was probably, you know, I was probably not paying much attention to it. Sure. Uh, but that's it from the 1934 uh, ranks for me. And uh, I, you know, I, I think this probably stands up. Yeah. I you know I, what what I find ironic about this whole thing and it's like many of these of the the great hit films is that neither uh, Clark Gable nor Claudette Colbert, Colbert thought they were doing anything particularly striking when they when they did this film. Right. Uh, they were they were uh, they, in fact Claudette Colbert actually said I think I was just in the worst movie ever made. Right. Well, yeah, the worst movie I'd ever started. I'd ever in. started. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, and then <laughs> you, Colbert. <laughs> well, and she had actually done another film with Frank Capra, which was his first film. And uh, oh gosh, what was it called? Let me. I'll find it here in a sec. He um, it, it did really poorly. She really felt like you know that was a terrible experience. I'm never going to work with him again. She only ended up agreeing to do this film. It was called For the Love of Mike. Came out in 1927. She only agreed to do this film because the uh, head of Columbia Pictures, Harry Cohn, agreed to double her salary. And at the time, her salary was twenty-five thousand. She wanted fifty thousand, and she was about to go on a, a vacation. She had four weeks off for vacation, and. And he said that he could get it done in four weeks. And so she agreed to do it. And it sounds like she kind of had a miserable time making this film. Uh, and then even at the when the Oscars uh, came around, she wasn't even there. She was about to leave on a, another vacation. I guess she was taking a lot of trips. She was at the train station, and it announced that she won. Somebody ran over to the train station, got her, and brought her back. She went up on stage and said, thank you, and started leaving. And then she came back and said, and I have to thank uh, Frank Capper for this. So she came around. It took she, a while. Yeah, it took a while. <laughs> it took and, winning an Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meh helps uh and uh yeah it, it just get you get the feel as you read about the the production of this film that uh everybody was just sort of taking it uh, taking it easy mm-hmm. uh that it, it was a screwball and you sort of get the 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 impression that it, it's or at least i get the impression that it is because as you say as the father of the screwball kind of romantic comedy that nobody quite understood what they were making yeah, which is interesting, coming so hot on the heels of some of the screwiest, balliest silent, or, or silent films, uh, as this film was. It, it, you know, it's one of those things. I think Capra himself, I don't think was expecting much out of this film. He thought it would be a fun little film to make. I don't think he was really thinking it was going to be anything big. Just another light, little, fluffy film that was going to be out there. Mm-hmm. 
um, uh, Clark Gable, uh, there's a, a couple stories as to why he ended up on the project. I, you know, the, the main prevalent story seems to be that he, he had been um, working over at, where was he, MGM, I think? Yeah. And, and the, he had, like, you know, kind of pissed the head of MGM off. And so they they sent him over to Columbia to make this little nothing film because Columbia at the time was considered the germ of the ocean. They Everyone kind of considered it kind of the last stop as far as film studios went because they had never won any awards. It was just kind of a very uh, startup company, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I think it's come out, uh, you know, since then that that uh, that wasn't quite the case. That uh, Gable, his rate, they were making more on selling Gable out to this other company to make this movie than they would have made with him sitting around, uh, because this was the days when basically a studio kind of controlled an actor and and had a big contract for you know years and put them in whatever movies they wanted, and they just got paid a weekly salary. They were making money on him, so it didn't hurt them at all to have him off working over at Columbia. Anyway, up to that point, Gable had really only been making more serious films or crime films, nothing that really fit this uh, mold. And so Capra apparently saw something in him that that he thought could work, kind of this comedy, and it, it he played it up really well. But, you know, from what I had read, you know, he started coming to the set. Initially, he was kind of drunk because he was just, you know, a, one of those tough guys who, you know, <laughs> just that's how he was, kind of a Robert Mitchum sort of guy. And Frank Capra had to kind of straighten him out, and it took him a little time to kind of get into Capra's vibe. But Capra was just like, look, you know, we're all making this movie. Let's make it the best we can. And uh, it just wasn't the thing that Gable was used to making. And so I think for him, it just, he never saw it as the sort of film that was kind of, I, I guess at the time, more serious Oscar fare. And I think he just went into it just kind of with a devil may care attitude and really had a great time making it. And you can tell, I think, watching Clark Gable and, and, and Claudette Colbert, they both are just having a lot of fun playing their roles and making this film. And the, the, the way that they have that kind of witty repartee that be- has become so well known in the screwball films, I think, is one of the things that makes the film stand out. I absolutely agree with that. There is a uh, a real infectious charm to their relationship on screen that you you uh, can really uh, feel like you're a part of their. Um, of their journey together, and the, you know, we we haven't talked at all about the film, and I I I wonder, you know, I, I imagine this is not a, a film that a lot of uh, contemporary uh, listeners may have seen. Should we w- walk through a little bit of the uh, uh, you know the plot, as such as it is? Sure, sure. Uh, well, I, and first we should say it was based on a short story, um, right? And uh, it was. That short story was, uh, let's see, Night Bus, 1933 short story Night Bus by Samuel Hopkins Adams. Uh, right. Uh, and so that is to say much of the, or a lot of their journey takes place on a bus at night. Yeah, a good chunk uh, of a, it. A piece of it. A good chunk, yeah. Uh, and basically, uh, Colbert plays Ellie, a spoiled heiress who's bored and frustrated with her father, who... Uh, essentially controls her life and makes her do the things that he wants to do and she wants to do things for herself. 
she's married somebody. Um, what's his name? King something. King Wesley. Yeah, King Wesley. And she's married him, you know, on a whim. And her father is trying to annul the marriage. She doesn't want to. She flees her father, jumping off the boat that they have, uh, you know, docked off of Florida, swims to her, and basically goes on the run, hopping on a bus so she can take a bus all the way up to New York and be with her husband. She runs into Clark Gable, who plays Peter Warren, a newspaper reporter who's kind of a down-and-out newspaper reporter. Basically, we meet him as he's quitting his job uh, in a very uh, a fun scene to watch with a very interesting relationship between him and his editor that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hops on this bus, meets her, a lot of, you know, arguments and, and interesting conversation between the two of them. Eventually, he learns who she is, and he kind of sells this idea that he'll help her get to New York so she can be with her husband and not tell anybody who she is as long as he gets the story and he can sell the story of who she is and all this stuff, why and all that, uh, to make some money off of it. And, of course, as they go along, they kind of fall in love and all that good stuff. And, yeah, I guess that's the long and the short of it. Yeah, that's that's good. Long the and long short. and short. Um, so back to their relationship on screen. I, I think it is uh, it is really charming and sort of addictive, uh, as these best romantic relationships on screen should be. Um, she is adorable and charming. And in particular, uh, the, the sequence where they're trying to hitchhike, mm-hmm. uh, as she, um, you know, she says... You know, I've I've seen a lot of the hiking. Where 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 do we start the hitching? <laughs> right, and and decides to stop on a fence. She does this. Uh, you know, he he does this whole bit. He's got a bit uh, of how he hails a cab or how he hails a car when he's hitchhiking, and he shows his, his all the different thumbs that he uses: mm-hmm. thumb one, thumb two. You know, and and how he does it, and what kind of face you need to have when you're doing that, and uh, when you're hitchhiking. The follow to get through. Them, the follow through. <laughs> right. There's just this, this fantastic delivery of this long kind of uh, monologue that he proceeds to demonstrate, and of course, no, uh, not a single car will stop for his hitching. And eventually it becomes really absurd as he's trying to, to hitch car after car after car. There's a, a, apparently a parade in town of some sort, and there's just <laughs> all these cars that are going by, and all we have is this medium shot on his face and uh, or on him with her in the background. And she is lying on her side on top of this fence in what I have to imagine is a precarious and not comfortable position. Right. Uh, at all and yet she's trying to sell it as you know and she, I think she does she sells it as as you know this uh, girlish kind of flirtive uh, you know flirtatious uh, um, pose and she proceeds to say you know I'm going to do this my way it's my my own standard and she goes and shows her leg all the way up to the high thigh right and a car stops and word is she didn't want to do that right and they actually hired a leg double and uh, when she saw the leg, she said, uh, "No, I'm I'm going to show my leg. That's not yep. my that's not my leg. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, I love social progress. Yes, it's great. Uh, and uh, and so it ends up being this this wonderfully charming moment with Gable sitting in the background, just being, uh, just being fantastically manly, uh, in his wonderful suit, arm up on the fence, and um, uh, making his case." 
So it was great. It was uh, it, it's a great little scene. I think it really uh, illustrates their uh, that that sort of turning point in their relationship where they become um, flirtatious with one another, where they sort of yeah. fall in love. And uh, absolutely. And and the rest of the film is uh, is a Romeo and Juliet story. Uh, he's the uh, you know he's the, the well, it's sort of except for the swords or words at the end. <laughs> That's there's, right. There's no no sword play, and no one dies, and, and, and they end up running off to to each other, right? That's right. That's right. And so, there's an auto gyro. And there's an auto gyro. That's a fantastic special effect. Practical that was, effect. Yeah. That was wonderful. Yeah. That was wonderful. So. Uh, so I love their relationship. I love how they how they um, how they approach one another on stage, and I think that's what one of the things that makes the movie even as weirdly uh, kind of comically goofy as it is, um, and and dated obviously 1934. It doesn't necessarily hold up, particularly social conventions. Things like he says, you know, I, he's having this conversation with her father, and says uh, what she needs is a husband who is, isn't afraid to soccer like soccer so, once a day soccer, soccer once a day whether she needs it or whether not whether she needs it or not that's uh like that that's uh and her father is smiling he yeah, agrees he totally agrees and says but do you love her yes i do <laughs> like you know i mean it's uh yeah things things change yeah, uh, and so there's some very dated kind of social conventions of the film, but uh, otherwise the language is is uh, tight and funny, and uh, uh, the performances are, you know, uh, as as just as vaudevillian as you want them in a in a film like this, and um, uh, you know, very approachable. Well, and the dialogue comes. Robert Riskin wrote the screenplay, and I believe he did quite a bit of work uh, with. Um, with Frank Capra, I think he, uh, you know, from 33, Lady for a Day, this, Mr. D's go to town, it goes to town, you can't take it with you, here comes the, uh, uh, here comes the groom, it happened one night, uh, let's see, meet John Doe, yeah, he, he did a lot of Capra stuff, and uh, is a, uh, a solid writer that uh, really, I think, connected well and knew what Frank Capra wanted. Frank Capra always enjoyed the the fast, fast pace, and you know, it's said that he would screen something, or when he'd watch it in the editing room, and he'd get it fast enough at what he thought. Then he'd watch it on a big screen. It always felt too slow, so he'd speed it up a little bit because um, there's a difference between watching it on a little screen and then watching it on the big screen. He always felt it slowed it down. So he would have his actors just deliver lines faster than you know they were used to because he really wanted to make sure he kept this fast pace. And I think that's what lent a lot to that screwball comedy feel. That's definitely something that happens a lot in screwball comedies is just that, that fast banter back and forth. I think that these two performers uh, both really caught on to that and, and do a great job with it. You see the scene when the detectives come the the morning the the first morning when they've spent the night in this little uh cabin when the bus pulls over and they they mm-hmm. spend the night um Colbert and uh Gable spend the night in this cabin wake up the next morning and there's detectives there and they have to put on this act about how they're this married couple and he just musses her hair which is <laughs> enough to 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 <laughs> fool these detectives which I thought was great because they would never suspect right 
her as somebody who had such must hair. I just thought that was hilarious. But this whole little act that they put on, they both totally get into this whole bit about this argument that they have and how he was drunk at this dance. And and it just goes on. And they both just are playing off of each other so well. It's all so fast. It just it, it comes at such a great pace. And then the detectives leave and they have such a great laugh over it. But you just get the sense that that, that style is really how this film is structured and needs to be structured in order to function in the genre that it's in. And I think these two actors really connected with that and with each other and made it work. Well, I, I think so. And I think this is, this is one of the conceits of the genre. If, you, if, it's, if it's so slow you can stop and think about it, then it's not funny. Uh, and and this film in that regard washes over you. I think that example uh, as well when they're talking in that uh, in the the boarding house, you know, and she's uh, uh, and they have the the um, the blanket up on the rope, uh, yeah. which is another uh, of Jericho. Uh, yeah, right. Right. Uh, you know, there is a sense when they speak to one another there and on the bus um, that there is no way that two people, when talking to one another and trying to adjust to each other's social cues, could ever talk that fast. Right. Uh, and yet, that's that's what makes their relationship so wonderful to just be a part of. It is a it's a, a roller coaster. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that's those two. What other characters strike you as um, uh, strengths in this film? You know, Frank Capra, uh, kind of like Preston Sturges, who we've talked about before, really directs and and uh, has a lot of really just great supporting characters in his film that make the film so much fun to watch. I think that a lot of the just the supporting characters all through this, whether it's Walter Conley playing Ellie's father or Roscoe Carnes playing Shapely, the uh, the guy flirting with her on the bus, or even Jameson Thomas as Wesley, Alan Hales in it. All these great people uh, just have, are, they're so much fun to watch. And I love that he, uh, he cast them so interestingly. And the way that they are played in the script is so interesting. You know, her father, uh, Andrew, Mr. Andrews, is written in such a way where at the beginning of the film, you don't like him very much. You think he's kind of this controlling guy who has this you know, freakish obsession with finding his grown daughter to the point where he's got detectives combing the countryside for her. And she's just run away because she's a married woman and she's going to her husband. Right. So it's a little controlling. Um, but then by the end of the film, you totally are on his side. And, and it's just such an interesting shift in that character that I really enjoyed. And I enjoy that, how he plays with that. The, the scene with Roscoe Carnes as Shapely when, uh, when uh, Gable's character, Peter Warren, uh, confronts him. Um, away from the bus uh, as if he's in the mafia and they're kidnapping her. And that whole scene plays so well. And his, uh, you know, Shapley's change from the time, really from when he's flirting with her to all of a sudden now he's thinking that this is her husband to thinking, oh, I'm in on this uh, big score. I'm going to make $10,000 for turning her in to all of a sudden, oh, this guy is kidnapping her and he's got, machine guns in the undercarriage of the bus. For the mob. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just his character is so much fun to watch. I have such a great time with him. It is it is really fun and and I love the uh, I, I I don't know I, I don't know if this is a 1930s film trope uh, but there is a sense that people don't have a lot of love for their cars 
<laughs> you know, he's they they steal cars left and right to get to the next uh, part of their journey, and in one case they are picked up after the hitchhiking bit you know she mm-hmm. she shows her leg and they're picked up by a by the road guy the road thief right and it, he comes he, the road thief is uh, apparently a guy who waits till they stop and at a rest stop and passengers <laughs> get out and then he runs back to the car and takes off and steals their stuff and sings a lot and along sing- the way as if he's forcing them out of the car or something exactly <laughs> that that's actually a nice touch and so uh, this happens and gable because of his superhuman speed, is able to chase down this car and returns with it, saying that he gave the guy a, uh, a bloody nose or black eye for it, and tied him to a tree, and tied him to a tree, <laughs> and stole his car. So, uh, so this happened. It seems to happen. Uh, you know, the, okay. So the last one, she they're staying at this boarding house, and Gable, in the middle of the night, takes the owner's car. And drives it uh, into New York to meet with his editor, uh, played by the great uh, Charles Wilson. And he, he, in the middle of the night, the couple discovers that he's gone, and they go in and say, "Oh, he took our car. Oh well, you better leave." Oh, I thought he took. I thought he took the car that he had already taken from the road thief. Oh, I thought he took the car from the owners, the people who said he took the car, because they were upset that he took that car. I thought they were just mostly upset that he absconded that he, in the middle of the night with, uh, without paying. Oh, I didn't make that. I didn't see that connection. I didn't catch that. Okay. So maybe that's the case. Yeah, either way, it was a stolen car. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Still stolen, so the yes. stolen car stands. Uh, in any case, he, he, uh, it, it, they, they have a very um, sort of uh, lax relationship with their automobiles in 1934. Yes. Apparently, they're quite easy to come by. Yeah, apparently, uh, who to thunk? Who to thunk? Um, the uh, we got to talk about Charles Wilson a little bit. Can we talk just briefly about him? First of all, he's let's talk ahead. about him. Yeah, go. I, I yeah, go ahead. I, did you have you did you look at his filmography? You look at at how many movies he's been in. He's been in. <laughs> you say it. It's a lot. I think this may be the record of uh, actors that certainly of actors we've talked about. Not not the ones in Tollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where he bolstered his uh, filmography here. He's been in 253 uh, titles uh, from uh, 1928 to 1948, uh, and there were you know a lot of them were bit parts, small parts, and and uh, uh, but this list is long and distinguished. Uh, and he plays the the editor, and he's he is so uh, he's great. He is the 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 quintessential kind of uh, uh, you know tough boss. Mm-hmm. They have a the, 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 you wanted to mention their initial relationship, the firing. Yeah, it's well, it's just such, again. This is another character like her father that you you're on his uh, on uh, uh, Peter's side at the beginning because you know his his boss. He's yelling at his boss, and it's Clark Gable. So of course we're on his side, and he's quitting his job because his boss doesn't understand him and all this stuff. And they have this you know big fight over the phone, and then Peter leaves because he's just you know better than that. And his boss, uh, who he keeps sending these um, uh, telegraphs by, uh, um, uh, what is it? He he, uh, I'm totally blanking on the term. Where he makes his boss pay for them, right? Collect, collect. Yeah. Thank you. 
Yeah, that's the word. <laughs> you know, one of those really complicated words like collect. <laughs> he keeps sending these telegraphs collect to his boss throughout the course of the film. And his boss is just such a hot-headed guy. But then when Peter finally comes in and talks to his boss and sells him on the story, all of a sudden it's this, it's this other great transformation where you see that Peter and his boss have this great relationship. And sure, they have these times where they're in these... Uh, all like you know fists out brawls basically but in the end they are still friends and peter is still a great reporter and gordon is going to keep using him and i loved that relationship and i loved how at the end gordon he comes out and he's just like hey come back to me when you're sober sober up and come talk to me i thought that was really interesting another one of those sort of cultural collisions where uh, you know, when I, I wonder how many times we hear that in businesses across the country today. Yeah. <laughs> Come talk to me when you sober up. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant relation. It's one of those relationships. You think, Gosh, I would love to have been a reporter in 1934. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I want a boss like that. That's right. Uh, 253 films. Yeah, and did you see he was in uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? Yes. Yeah. There you go. It's a good one. He's a busy guy. Busy, busy guy. Um, let's see. Do you want to talk about uh, anybody else specifically? Uh, Cast-wise, no. I think that, uh, you know, that's the, the big ones for the cast. Yep. Yep. Okay. The crew. We've talked a little bit about uh, our the uh, screenwriting. Yep. Robert Riskin. Robert Riskin. Uh, talking about. Uh, we've talked about. Oh, uh, Joseph Walker. Yeah, Joseph Walker, the cinematographer. Yeah. Do you want to talk about him? He collaborated with Frank Capra <laughs> on. <laughs> Were yep. you? Wait- I was waiting for you. No, I. That was a handoff. I was. I was. That was tossing that to you. Do you want? To, oh, this good is... thing we're not on a. Uh, <laughs> my brain Goodness. is so fried. Oh my. Um, yeah. He collaborated with Frank Capra on twenty films. Wow. That's a lot of films together. Yeah. So. He's yeah. 20... He is. He's one of those cinematographers who has been around the block. He has uh, twenty patents on various camera-related inventions that he devised, including the double exposure system, several zoom lenses, the Duomar lens for both motion picture and television cameras, the variable diffusion device, the facial makeup meter, lightweight camera blimps, and optical diffusion techniques. So wow. He's, <laughs> he's an important guy in the world of cinematography. <laughs> Yeah, he sounds important. Do you want to talk a little <laughs> bit about the the importance of some of those discoveries, particularly the uh, like the um, the uh, diffusion technology, the electrozoom lens that is, uh, I think, is uh, you know the forefather of stuff that's being used by Zeiss uh, today. I I want you to talk about. That. No, you don't. So you don't have anything. For that. I don't have anything on any of that stuff. Right, I just good. think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, we'll we'll fix that in post. <laughs> Sounded super smart today. <laughs> uh, it's because we're doing this on the wrong day. 
You've totally I messed know. us up. This I, is uh, I blame you. I blame you. For two that. days ahead of all my research. That's why. I know it hasn't it hasn't settled in yet. That's right. It really hasn't. Uh, okay, so that's Joseph. We like Joseph Walker. Let's uh, talk then about what we uh, what we see of Joseph Walker's work. Uh, anything in this film that stands out as uh, particularly interesting stylistically? To well, you? I think it's important to note that this film, because of the nature of this four week schedule that they had to make, they, normally a film like this would probably have been shot in six to eight weeks. This film had to be rushed into this four week schedule to fit. Uh, Colbert's vacation schedule that she had. Because of that, they didn't really have time to build all the sets that they needed to make. So the vast majority of the film was shot on location. They did film some sets, like some of the little uh, motels that they stayed in along the way, uh, the house, even the bus, that was kind of a set. But most of the road stuff was actually shot out on the road. And, you know, we've talked about this with some of these older films before, where when you're shooting on location back in the day, these cameras that they were using are, were not these little handheld devices that people use today. These were massive, big cameras. And so it was a lot of work to go on location and to film a location film. It really wasn't done a whole lot. And so it was kind of a big thing for Columbia to, to go and do this when it, you know, Columbia being this little tiny studio that was, didn't meet up to the big boys uh, back in 1934. And so I think that he managed to capture a lot of great stuff with you know the technology that he had on location. I mean, he really did a great job. And some of the shots are really beautiful. You've got these stunning shots of Colbera that just absolutely make you fall in love with her. I mean, she's just gorgeous to look at. You know, the... The, the night scenes, lighting at night, and all the stuff that they had to shoot at night, I think he captures it in ways that fit really well within the genre of a romantic comedy. You've got kind of that romantic soft light that comes through at night, and it just it really enhances the mood. But it doesn't detract from it or, or make it ever enter into like a noirish territory or anything like that. I think he does a just a bang up job with the time he had to make a film that uh, that needed to look how it uh, appropriate for its genre. Yeah, I you know, I think I think you're right, particularly the beauty shots I think are are uh, you know, are are gorgeous both for for uh you know, Clark Gable and uh, Claudette Colbert. I think they they make these actors really divine. Uh, mm -hmm. in this film. And that's one of the things that I, I walked away with was the sense that these these are, as goofy as the film is, these are movie stars. Yeah, and absolutely. we're going to to demonstrate that by just how beautiful we're capturing them on, on screen. And we're not going to let the sense and sensibility of the, the film get in the way of the fact that these are movie stars. Right. Uh, I, thought that was, I thought that was a really nice touch. And I didn't look into it, but it does look like they used some sort of Vaseline on the lens type of thing mm -hmm. when they would have Colbert's close-ups because it really did have that beautiful, soft focus around her that just really made her glow. Right, right. Yeah, that's the word, glow and kind of greasy. Mm, a little. Mm. A little. Mm. <laughs> um, who else strikes you as interesting to talk about? Anybody else on your list? Well, Harry Cohn, I think it's just important to mention you know, the, the head of Columbia Pictures, who did have a great relationship with Frank Capra. He brought Frank, Frank Capra over uh, early on in his career. He kind of saw him as somebody who 
could make some great films. He, I think, had, at the time had been doing some of the Max Sennett comedies. And uh, he, he brought him over to make some of his films. And, you know, I think that Capra stayed there for a long time because it was just, you know, he had this great relationship with Harry Cohn. Harry Cohn was one of the three founders of Columbia Pictures, which uh, they founded back in, I believe it was around 1918 as, uh, what was it called before it became Columbia Pictures? It was Cohn Brandt Cohn Film Sales. Back in 1918, released his first feature film in 1922, changed to Columbia Pictures in 1924. And it uh, it really struggled as this kind of low-end studio until this film came out and really shot it up there as a contender for the with the big boys because it won five Oscars that year. Mm-hmm. And that really helped Columbia Pictures become this major studio that is still here today and now is a division of Sony Pictures Entertainment. Interesting. It seems like this was one of the uh, l- this was one of the later films in uh, in Harry Cohn's catalog. I mean, he produced over two hundred titles, and and uh, only let's see, um, eleven after this, uh, after it happened one night. That's crazy talk, right? Mm. Uh, it, it, to, so to, you know, I, I mean, he was a busy guy. Uh, but it it's not as if he presided over a whole lot of uh, well, and that's not true. I'm not actually reading this terribly closely, but this was the film that really you know stood out for um, for Cone and Columbia, and uh, it happened late in his production career. I find that well, well, he I mean he he was actually the head of the studio mm-hmm. all the way into the late 50s. He actually was still head of he was the last Hollywood movie mogul of the studio system era. He was uh he had retained power after Daryl Zanuck had left, right. after after Mayer had left. And, well, and, uh, and and it looks like he stopped getting uh you know per film credit before it happened one night. He wasn't even credited on that as a producer. Yeah, it was so, it was you know kind of like when Daryl yeah. Zanuck was the head of 20th Century yeah, Fox. It, right. His name wasn't always on the credits, but he was really still the man behind the studio yeah. who kind of approved things and made sure that people were doing what he wanted them to right, be doing. Right. Okay, so we so, like Harry Cohn too. We're we do fans. like, yes. Right. And and now I think we need to speak a little bit about Frank Capra. Man, saving that one for the end, huh? You bet. All right. What do we love about Frank Capra? Well, I, I find it interesting that Capra, you know, is, I believe, one of the first directors, if not the first director, to have such a defined style that he essentially creates his own adjective. Or he doesn't, but, you know, society ends Others up have, adjective. Yeah. Yes, Capra-esque is a very, you know, common phrase, just like Tarantino-esque has mm-hmm. become kind of a common phrase in film circles describing a certain type of film. Uh, his films are very easy to to pinpoint because they do have a certain vibe to them. They generally are kind of about a a a particular uh, guy who's who's fighting the system, and it's a it's a guy who really believes in things and believes in the way things should be, and you see that in. Uh, it happened uh, in. You see that in. It happened one night. A little bit. You see that in 
uh, It's a Wonderful Life, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's just this this style in his films that is very uh, very easy to pinpoint, and it's very feel-good. And I think a lot of people nowadays kind of use it as a term when they're really kind of describing something that's probably more cheesy in, in kind of its, in, in its maudlin sense. You know, it's, it's not something that is uh, as enjoyable nowadays. Maybe people are a little more cynical. And I think that uh, maybe Capra's style is not quite uh, fitting with the, the modern zeitgeist. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, finish, yeah, your, maybe, finish yeah. your sentence. Finish, well, finish what I, you were saying. Uh, I just I find it interesting that you know he created this vibe and it but it's what I was going to say is it's it's very interesting to me that this is a person who really ended up falling from that style and and essentially uh, kind of you know losing his place in the Hollywood system because of the style of directing that he had it became a uh, here here's a great um film author Richard Griffith summarizing his theme. A messianic innocent pits himself against the forces of entrenched greed. His inexperience defeats him strategically, but his gallant integrity in the face of temptation calls for the goodwill of the little people. And through their combined protest, he triumphs. That's a great way to kind of define Capra's uh, theme that he so often used. But in the 30s, this is post-depression, it really worked with the people, and people loved his films, and that's probably his most popular decade. In the 40s, he still had some successes, but they ended up being outweighed by his failures, and by the time it was uh, in the 50s, he only made three films the whole decade. None of them were very good, and he really... Uh, I can't remember what his last film was, but he, it was a remake of a previous film of his. Pocket, I think 19, Pocket Full of Miracles? Yeah, and it was made in 1961. It was a the last film he made and generally considered a failure, I think it was a remake of uh, Lady for a Day, the film he made right before this. And it was considered a big failure, and he never directed again. He's somebody who just, he was kind of a director for the time. He really worked well in the 30s, and then it just kind of fell off. And you don't hear people talk about his films from the 40s or 50s very much. It's really the films in the 30s that stand out as these Capra-esque films that... Uh, define the meaning of what Caprask is. Yeah, I think so. I, I like your um, I, I like the way you put that. That he was a director for his time. He kind of get, has that same sense as like a uh, like a John Hughes, you know. Yeah. Um, that that there was this um, this uh, set of uh, circumstances that had him in the right place at the right time, making the right films. And and uh, uh, but you know one of the things I noticed, and I haven't seen enough of Capra's movies. I've seen the big ones, but I haven't seen enough of them that. Um, uh, you know, to be able to make a sweeping statement. So if I start lying here, let me know. One of the things that I like so much about this film, It Happened One Night, is that the caper, the gag, exists at the expense of uh, the the sort of honesty in our lead character, right? I mean, there is no duplicitousness from... uh, uh, from Gable as he right. moves through, even though everyone thinks that he's going, he is duplicitous at the end of the film. Like everybody thinks he's he he was in it just for the money, and and right. uh, and it turns out he was honest the whole way through. Right, it was the misunderstanding was all through honest. I think that's a that's a uh, you know that's a, an interesting 
important point for me that that this that Capra's choice here is to is to make all the characters on the up and up. They may not know all the information uh, about one another. You know, they may not all be equipped with with the uh, you know the complete set of information to understand one another's motivations. But they are all honest to their own universe, and I I, I really like that. That's what gives it that kind of feel good uh, aesthetic. Uh, and right. um, you you walk out not feeling like uh, you were betrayed uh, by watching anybody else get betrayed on screen. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. No, oh, good. Well, and scene. <laughs> uh, shall, what, shall we move on? Shall we flick chart this thing? Are we done? Do you, you know? No, I I do have other points. All right, bring them. Bring them. Let's do. Let's rapid fire these things. Okay, yeah. this I I find really interesting. This film was very uh, one of the very favorite films of none other than Fritz Freeling, one of the creators of Bugs Bunny, or the creator of Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Wait, I got, I got another one. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay, well. And, and can I just say it? Yes. Adolf Hitler. And, and Adolf Hitler, <laughs> that's right. That always but, makes me funny. Think he was like a guy that liked movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, and, and then he well, liked movies a lot. <laughs> he did, yeah. <laughs> So Fritz Freeling liked this so much that there were, uh, according to his unpublished memoirs, there were at least three things in this film upon which the Bugs Bunny character was based. One was the character Oscar Shaley, uh, his personality in the film, the way that he um, is always calling Peter Doc when he's talking. So that was one thing that kind of informed Bugs Bunny. The second, the way that Peter is eating the carrots and talking quickly when they're sitting on the fence. The oh, way he's we didn't even talk about the carrot scene? The carrots. Yeah. Oh. oh, another great scene. And then third is the, uh, uh, the, when, when Peter is talking to Shapely about, you know, he's come up with this whole mob story about how they're kidnapping her. He tells this story about, oh, you, haven't you ever heard of the guy Bugs Dooley and how, you know, the horrible things that happened to him when he squealed and all this stuff. So <laughs> those three things are the things that supposedly informed uh, the character Bugs Bunny. So pretty interesting. Also, in his world of Looney Tunes characters, supposedly um, Alexander Andrews, her father, was the inspiration for Yosemite Sam, and King Wesley was the inspiration for Pepe Le Pew. Oh, totally. Totally so, it was. <laughs> it's very funny to think about that. That is uh, great. When you're watching this movie. And as a result, Adolf Hitler's probably a great fan of Looney Tunes. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> I, I hear he quoted Pepe Le Pew. Often. Quite a bit. <laughs> last, last little bit. This yes. is... The famous film where Clark Gable, he couldn't remove his undershirt fast enough when he was doing the scene where he's taking off his clothes. And so he, he gave up on the undershirt and undressed without the undershirt. And it became so uncool to wear an undershirt after uh, people saw this film that there was a huge drop in undershirt sales around the country. And legend has it that some of the underwear manufacturers actually sued Columbia because of the loss of finances from uh, sales of undershirts. Wow. Who knew? This is the film. <laughs> That's right. That's that, why I don't wear undershirts. Because that, to, the, to this day, right. <laughs> never my, my mother wouldn't even allow me to look at an undershirt when I was a boy. <laughs> She said, if that good. Gable doesn't do it, it won't happen for my boy. 
Oh. Uh, see, I am a man out of time. We're born to be in a screwball comedy. <laughs> If you want to find us and find a list of our now top 100 films, where would we go, Andrew? Flickchart.com slash the next, the next reel. reel. That's the truth. We would go to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you would find that list of, of uh, all of the films that we've done uh, on this show and see what our number one film is, which is it going to be? It happened one night. We'll see shortly when we rank this puppy against, uh, against the other films we've done. Right now, up for uh, grabs, the title is held by Network. Absolutely. Uh, fantastic film. I don't All right. Know. I don't know if I see it. I Go don't for it. Let's know if do I it. see it either. This is going to okay. be a hard one because this is a light film, right? I don't know how often I want to just uh, throw this in. That's what I'm saying up front. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about this film, about this chances of this film. I'm not worried about it landing where it should, though. Okay. All right. We'll see. We'll see. All right. It happened one night. Or Inside Man. Inside Man. Interesting. Even with the problems, huh? The problems of Inside Man? Yeah. The Jodie Foster character, you know, we, we had issues with that. Well, of course we had. She was a nonsense character, but you get rid of that, and you still have Clive Owen in, in a wall. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Clive Owen in a wall. And Denzel. I hate, no, oh, I, all right. I'll go Denzel, with Inside Man. Yeah. I'll go with Inside Man. It happened one night or Clute. Oh, I think we have to say Clute. I don't know. For honor. I'm going to say it happened one night. Okay. Okay. It I happened one night. Enjoy Fine. the relationship. Gable, Colbert, Colbert, or Fonda and Sutherland. I'm going to go with Gable and okay. Colbert. Okay. All Fine. Right. I know. It happened one night. Or Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Well, it's Indy. Yeah, even though the second, third, and fourth Indiana Jones uh, films all have such goofiness to them, it is an Indiana Jones film. It's an film. Indiana Jones film. It's hard to sort of ask. It Happened One Night or The Bourne Legacy. This is the fourth one. Yeah. Oh. I might go it happen one night. If it were one of the first three, I'd probably go Jason Bourne. But for this one, I think I would go it happen. But you're one. you're gonna give up uh Jeremy Renner as action boy. I am. I'd rather watch Jeremy Renner in the Hurt Locker. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Yeah. Okay. It happened one night. It happened one night or Alien Three. Dave <laughs> Pincher's first film. Uh you know, I I, I I'd put Alien 3 on in front of uh, a, a lot of movies, as weird as that is. <laughs> that is weird. That is weird. That I've is been known to. I like that weird. David Fincher. Well, and the director's cut of Alien 3, it's not the director's cut, but the extended cut yeah. does make it a much better film. I know. I like that film though, more than Even though the did. effects are much more dated yep. than any of the other films. I'll go Alien 3, although I feel a little guilty doing it. I know. You should. That's good. I'm giving that one to you. It happened one night or the game. The game. Yeah, I'm totally going the game. Some people hate that film, but I think it's great. I'm not friends with any of them. I'm not either. It happened one night or the, the professional or Leon. I, you know, I'm going to go it happened one night on yeah, this one. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll give that one to you on this case. Oh, thank you. Number 69 out of 102. All right. It cracked the top 100. We get to say that now. 
<laughs> yes, it did. Yes, it did. You know, one thing we forgot to do? Tell me. Just run through the numbers real quick. Oh, let's do that. 1934, this film cost $325,000 to make. In today's dollars, that's about $5.5 million. So, you know, a decent little budget. It... Uh, ended up making, it did really well for itself. I found domestically it made about $2.5 million, which is uh, adjusted about $42.8 million. So all told, the film had an adjusted, for today's dollars, profit per finished minute, $354,835 that it made per finished minute, right between Fight Club and The Natural. Man. Yeah, it did better than the natural. I'm, you know, I love that list now that it's adjusted for uh, inflation. That, that's, uh, I well, love best, that's, uh, that. That's a new thing. The best thing about it is that Indiana Jones and the Crystal Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is no longer number one. Right. <laughs> that is the best thing about the list. <laughs> Jaws has supplanted it as the number one film, making 15.6 million dollars per finished minute. Oh. <laughs> Oh, yes. That's just uh, number fantastic. one with a bullet. That's right. I love that we did that. That's how, that you did that. Look at we. Look at me taking credit. Look at that you. That was great. Yeah. I love that. So we'll get that up on our website. Yeah, we. I. I that's got to fix that. Um. So in any case, that's where we stand this week. Let's. Uh, that wraps up our couples on the run series. Did you learn anything? You feel like you uh, observed anything fantastic and new uh, uh, in this? Series? I have. I have learned that cinematic couples love to go on the run. I think put that's a couple on screen, they're going to be running from something. We learned that there are many couples on the run films, and we certainly are going to continue talking about them in the future. All right. That's all I really learned well, from was, it. That was not much. I know it was pretty weak, wasn't that it? It was fairly weak sauce. <laughs> all right. So what are we doing next week? Something deeper and apparently quite popular. Apparently quite popular. Uh, we are going to be doing a series of the Cohen brothers. Uh, this is uh, one of our listeners gave us this recommendation quite a little while back saying you should do a Cohen brothers series. And uh, we're finally getting around to it. We are going to be doing a series of them, but we're kind of focusing on more of their serious films. We're not jumping into any of their comedies. And uh, at least, I mean, you know, not direct comedies. Yeah. So we're going to have a nice little series of these. Uh, oddly enough, as you said, it's popular over on the Auteur cast. They've just started Coen Brothers series over there as well. So I guess it's just in the air. It's time for Coen. <laughs> People know it. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it that gave us the suggestion to do the Coens? Uh, well, I feel like we need proper credit, and I forgot to look at it. Do you remember? I, I think we're going to credit them next week when we introduce the series. Okay. Well, we I I we owe them credit. We've had this conversation, and I just I forgot her name uh, right now. I'm looking. I'm scrolling for it right now. <laughs> in mid scroll. That's why we're going to inter- or mention it next week. <laughs> Nothing. Ah. All right. I, I, well, we're very excited and uh, uh, to talk about the Coens, and I have been, um, you know, I've been. Uh, hot and cold on some of the Coens, as you know. But the Coens list that we have planned, I'm I'm hot on. I'm mostly hot on it. You're I, not because of my choice. Uh, well, the, <laughs> one of my choices, I always kind of fluctuate too. So you know, I'm I'm a little backwards and forwards. Well, should we say what movie we're starting with? Le, well, let's just say the list. Why not? All right, go for it. So people can watch them all ahead of time. All right, we're so gonna, yeah, we should gonna, do that. 
we're going to cover Blood Simple. So start right at the beginning. Then we're going to jump uh, to Miller's Crossing, hit Barton Fink, go to Fargo, and end with No Country for Old Men. So which one are you hot and cold on of your pick? Miller's Crossing. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a film that I I always think I really enjoy it, and then I watch and go, oh, okay, it's not quite what I remember. And then I think, then I leave it, and I'm like, okay, but there's those things element. So I, it's it's one that I get hot and cold on. You know, yeah. I, I usually am a little colder once I've watched it, and then as time goes by, I, I warm up to it again. So well, we'll see I, how my, it is this time. The, 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 my memory of uh, all of those films, with the exception of No Country for Old Men and Barton Fink, uh, is is fairly old. Uh, the one I'm looking forward to most uh, to watch again is Fargo. I have great great memories of that, but I don't think I've seen it since I saw it in the theaters. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, and the one that I like that you were, didn't even want to do in this series was Barton Fink. You're yeah, very gracious. That's, that's one that I've never liked. I've only seen it the one time when it came out, and I am, I am actually curious to see it again. So I'm hoping I'll get more out of it this time now that I have a little more of a mature mind. Hmm. Is that what they're calling? What you uh, I think it's old age is <laughs> what they call it. <laughs> Happy birthday, by the way! Yeah, thank you. Is this is actually? I, I guess technically, no. This is is this our this is our second show since you've been uh, an old man. It's, it depends on when when I became old. Well, happy birthday! <laughs> uh, oh, thank you. Thank and uh, okay, so I think we're done. Are we done? And I'm spent. I think we've used that one before. I've used that one many times. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.